New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Our guests today write, as we careen from one crisis to the next, focus on political struggles that seem to rarely produce even short-term solutions, it's easy to avoid big questions that have no easy answers, such as, what is the sustainable carrying capacity of the planet for Homo sapiens? Today, we'll be exploring such questions as, has our human arrogance and assumptions of our cleverness obscured our ability in being able to face and meet the multiple cascading crises? Are we avoiding the evidence of difficult truths at our peril? Is our future one of limitation? And if so, can we face it with courage to do the best job with what is possible? Join me in being courageous as our guests today, Dr. Robert Jensen and Dr. Wes Jackson, lead us into the dragon's mouth of denial of our comforting illusions regarding the dramatic changes in the world in which we live. Dr. Robert Jensen is Professor Emeritus in the School of Journalism at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the author of many books, including The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson, Searching for Sustainability, and Plain Radical, Living, Loving, and Learning to Leave the Planet Gracefully. Dr. Wes Jackson is co-founder and president emeritus of the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. A 1992 MacArthur Fellow he is the author and co-author of numerous books, including Hogs Are Up, Stories of the Land with Digressions, and New Roots for Agriculture. They are co-authors of An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Change, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity. Join us for the next hour as we explore our collective path in dealing with today's multiple cascading ecological crises with our guests, Dr. Robert Jensen and Dr. Wes Jackson. I'm speaking with Robert and Wes in their homes by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Wes and Robert, 
thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having us. Uh, as, as someone who's been listening to your program for decades now, it's a real honor to be to be here, to be back. To be back, to yeah. be back for both of you, yeah. actually. I want to start off with questions that you both deal with and, and have been looking at, and that is the question, how do people change? And I know it's not happening through government reporting or through all the information that we have. And I know that the two of you have been doing like public discourses together at at certain moments. So my question is, what are the denials that people are coming up with or objections that people are coming up with, with the hard truths? that the two of you come up with? I I would love to know, what is it that they come up with in these public discourses? Well, I'll say something really quick, which is that people tell me you're just too pessimistic, as if being pessimistic is a, a character flaw. And my response, of course, is that I'm not pessimistic or optimistic. I'm trying to evaluate reality. But I don't, I, I think both Wes and I get a lot of that. You know, it's it's somehow a sin not to be upbeat uh, in the contemporary United States. Mm-hmm. Well, I could say almost exactly the same thing, that um, we've lived in a culture which um, says, be positive, and uh, next year is going to be better, and we'll figure something out. And meanwhile, things get worse. Uh, So uh, there's a kind of denial, not just of single cultures here and there, but for people essentially everywhere that have been thinking about uh, the modern problems. Well, yeah, exactly. And when you talk about the modern problems, going back to another phrase that you use, uh, you uh, I think it's Wes, you came up with this. Uh, we are a species out of context. And I know that 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 you feel, both of you feel that understanding our human uh, civilization, the history of this human civilization is important in understanding what this means, a species out of context. So please help us understand what you mean by that. Wes, maybe you... Okay, well, I count myself as an evolutionary biologist. Uh, My background uh, is in genetics. And uh, I count myself as a Darwinian evolutionary biologist. And once you get into that and start seeing uh, the penetration of the way the world not only came to be originally, but the way the world continues uh, to come to be as a result of natural selection. So we had over 200,000 years in the upper Paleolithic as Homo sapien, it may be as much as 300, there's argument on that. But for a long time, uh, we creatures of the upper Paleolithic were gatherers and hunters. We didn't have iron and we didn't have a lot of ready fossil carbon. 
you know, certainly out of mines and wellheads and ports of entry and so on. So uh, we became something very different starting 10,000 years ago uh, when we got into agriculture and began to harvest the young pulverized coal of the soil. That's the way Avery Lovins put it. And so we didn't know what we were doing when we were allocating that carbon of the soil and sending it to the seeds on, um, on wheat, for instance. And so once we started that journey, uh, we were into something very new. And the, 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 the relationship with the earth changed. And then it changed again 5,000 years later when um, uh, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, the, the trees were cut uh, to smelt the ore. And then, of course, after that, the coal, the oil, the natural gas. And that, of course, been a very short 300-year experience. Uh, so we're living within a world that we didn't know for a couple hundred thousand years, and we don't know how to behave ourselves. Yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned the book, The Restless and Relentless Mind of Wes Jackson that I wrote. The working title of that book was Wes's Greatest Hits. And I think the phrase, Wes has a great ability to capture something in an aphorism. And the phrase that of his that had the most dramatic effect on me was exactly that one, a species out of context, because it forced me to think in a deeper historical context, not just the problems of the last decades, not even the problems of the last few centuries, but problems that go back to this dramatic shift when humans moved from a foraging economy to an agricultural economy. Now, obviously, that didn't happen in the same way everywhere on the planet, you know, geography and climate matter to how that developed. But that was what sort of shocked me into thinking a little differently. So what I take away from Wes's observation about us being a species out of context is not just that, you know, hunters and gatherers didn't drive around in cars, that's obvious, but that most of what we take to be normal, you know, what like a nation state or a big metropolitan city, those are incredibly abnormal in human history. They're in fact quite strange. Uh, living in a social unit with hundreds, thousands, even millions of people is not the way we evolved. And, and as Wes would say, I think that's one reason we're not very good at it. And so seeing that the problems we have are not just the problems of you know a bad government or a corrupt leader, but they're really wired into this problem of being a species out of context. For me, when I first read that from Wes decades ago now, it was transformative for me. This takes me then to the, the hard questions that you are posing in this process, in this book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse. And in this way, you're, you're saying, even if we don't have solutions, it doesn't mean that the problem is irrelevant or that we shouldn't be asking it. So do you have any thoughts on that to, to help us to, to look at some of these hard questions? Yeah, one of the things we say is there are problems without solutions if we keep expecting life to go on as normal. So these four, four hard questions are, 
what is the sustainable size of the human population? What is the appropriate scale of human social and political organizations? What is the scope of our competence to manage all this technology? And finally, what is the speed at which we must move to create a sustainable human presence on the planet? And as you point out, it's not only there are no easy answers to those questions, that if we continue to think in the frameworks we are, there are no answers at all. And that's why you know, we call them the hard questions. We don't, it's not like, you know, we have a notebook on our shelf we're going to pull down and give you the answers from. I I laughed when I opened the book. I, I just, you guys nailed me, just nailed me. When I opened the book, I immediately went to the last chapter, <laughs> the conclusion <laughs> chapter, and you said, you know, many of you are going to go to this part of the book first, and it just made me laugh out loud because it was so true. That's exactly what I did. So with that said, I before we go on, I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Wes Jackson and Dr. Robert Jensen, and they are the co-authors of an Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity. And if you want to know more about their work, you can go to their, their two different websites. Um, for Wes Jackson, go to landinstitute.org, O-R-G, landinstitute.org. And for Robert, go to Robert W. Jensen. He spells his last name J-E-N-S-E-N dot org. Robert W. Jensen dot org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. life, the winged life we've led. So kiss the joy as it goes by, the poet William said, like the poet said. Cause the old future's gone, the old future's gone. We can't get to there from here. dead and gone never to return there's a new way through the hills ahead this one will have to I'm here with Dr. Wes Jackson and Dr. Robert Jensen, and we're talking about an inconvenient apocalypse, environmental collapse, climate crisis, and the fate of humanity, which is the name of their book. That that word is uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that. You chose that particular word. What do you mean by? apocalypse end of the world i mean the biblical apocalypse what 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 are you talking about there well first of all bob tell about how the title got uh put on <laughs> it wasn't our title yeah uh, but we used it in the book and so i guess it was fair to 
I have it in the title. Yeah, the working title for this book was The Old Future's Gone, uh, which is we borrowed from a, a song by the great singer-songwriter John Gorka, who's a friend. And, and we meant to convey that the future we've always imagined, this future of endless bounty and expansion, that future is over. And John's song captures that very well. But um, Wes is prodding me to point out that we, we did not use that title because uh, it didn't have enough search engine terms in it, uh, which, you know, that's one of the realities. Uh, books are bought online. People search online. So the press came up with this really catchy title, An Inconvenient Apocalypse. And we use the word apocalypse in its original meaning. So apocalypse is from the Greek, revelation is from the Latin, and they both mean the same thing. They don't mean the end of the world. They mean uh, a coming to clarity, an unveiling of the truth. So when one is apocalyptic, one isn't preaching about the end of the world necessarily. One is saying we have to have the courage to lift the veil and see the world clearly. And so we thought that was an appropriate term. Now, you know, in pop culture, of course, the word apocalypse has come to mean the end of the world. And while we don't mean that, we do think that there uh, is a reckoning with the end of the systems that currently structure the human world. So we're not preaching the end of the planet. Wes loves to say, you know, the planet's going to be fine once we're gone. Uh, we're not saving the planet. We're trying to recognize that the human systems, you know, capitalism, the nation state, all of these things that we take for granted today. Uh, those are going to come to an end, but the world will keep on chugging with or without us. That takes me to the idea there, and you mentioned all of this, there is a biological, this is a scientific truth. Nature has a, a way that there is a biological carrying capacity mm -hmm. for all species. And so I'd love for you to talk about that because Wes you you have this the great towards the end of the book you have this title i think you're calling it um hope in a ponzi scheme and you you talk about the how we've going back to our history how we've been living on this ponzi scheme with nature so to speak right well uh this is perhaps uh, a rather minor uh, I won't call it a corrective. Um, I really don't like calling the Earth a planet. Uh, all the other, there are planets all through our particular sidereal universe. But there's something very special about us. So far as we know, we are the only one within this uh within this uh, constellation, this group of planets that has creaturely behavior. And um, that makes us different than uh, the rest of what the solar system is dealing with. And that's a very interesting thing that very early, very early, there was a journey from minerals to cells and following that and maybe beginning with that the Darwinian selection uh, after some very early energy wars. And so here we are, and no asteroid has been able to destroy it. We cannot destroy it. We can only make this, 
This is what gave rise to us. It is our uh, <laughs> uh, parentage, uh, if if one will. And so uh, we are here. Uh, it happens to be matter and energy's way of having gained self-recognition. So far as we can tell, no other creature has that on this earth. So it's a very special place. And the big drama of the fossil fuel world has made it possible for us to know where we are, what the astrophysicists have learned and what we've learned from Darwin and Darwin's descendants. Uh, this is a very special place. And we can keep that going if we start changing our behavior. Otherwise, we'll just become extinct. And uh, uh, there may be very few species left by the end of that time, uh, but the likelihood is we won't be one of them. That's one of the things that, that we pointed out in the book. And that is we are, we are not creatures plus. I like uh, Bob if he wanted to speak to that. I think it's a very important point that we are creatures along with all the other creatures. And that plus business uh, has a way of distorting uh, reality. I, that may, I think that's worth mentioning. Yeah, you know, uh, Wes's comment reminds me, uh, Justine, you said that this book is a lot about trying to challenge denial. And probably the most central reality that is denied these days is the denial of limits. As you point out, every species has a, you know, a maximum population. Now, of course, human beings have used all that energy that Wes talked about, starting with agriculture, to temporarily transcend the limits of an ecosystem. But that can't go on forever. So I think one of the most um, striking denials is the denial that there is a an upper limit on human population and that eventually we're going to have to reckon with that. Now, nobody knows what that limit is, and Wes and I certainly don't pretend to. Uh, some ecologists and biologists who I think are sensible say that the carrying the sustainable carrying capacity of the planet for humans is probably around 2 billion people. Well, we're coming up on 8 billion right now. That means that at the very least, we have to think about how to cut the human population in half and maybe half again that. Well, that's another one of those hard questions. How do we do that? And because the limits of the ecosphere inevitably will make that uh, uh, demand on us, people want to avoid it. So this is what, you know, West for a long time has called the problem of technological fundamentalism, the assumption that we will continually transcend the limits of the ecosphere by more dense energy and high technology. And I think what makes that point of view fundamentalist, especially is if you point out that some of the problems we have today are from the previous use of high energy, high technology, the solution, so to speak, is more energy and more technology, right? In other words, you kind of double down on the problem that got you there in the first place. And that is a real fundamentalist kind of worldview. So yes, there is a carrying capacity uh, the planet will impose on us and simply ignoring it or denying it doesn't make that reality go away.
So you're talking about we have a kind of techno-optimism, I think you call it. Uh, And you point out, like, I think rightly in the book, and it's something I've thought about, is like, okay, let's say, oh, well, if we all just drive um, electric cars, then we won't need gasoline, and then, therefore, we're not polluting and, and causing global warming or whatever it is. But it does not take into consideration the resources it takes to make even an electric car. So, I mean, some help me help help us to understand the the scope of what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, uh, several years ago, uh, we had a ten year study called the Sunshine Farm. And it was run by Marty Bender, the late Marty Bender. And uh, we uh, set out to take the conventional agriculture that we had and uh, uh, try to do it using contemporary energy. So we had draft horses, we had chickens, we had cows. We grew fuel that we would put in a biodiesel tractor and so on. Now, Marty Bender, uh, in trying to get a full cost accounting, uh, went out, uh, went all the way back to the mining of the ore in the Minnesota mine, mine range to build the tractor to processing in Gary, Indiana, to uh, how many worker days in order to build a tractor and so on. Well, what we realized is that the boundary of consideration uh, that was necessary for uh, uh, getting the contemporary energy uh, approach uh, just went bonkers. I mean, we could not get there. It was dumb of us to think that we could establish a boundary that would be realistic. Uh, Now, we kind of knew that, but we also were living with uh, an idea that the boundary of consideration has to overlap the boundary of causation. Well, that sounds good. That came from two great scientists at uh, Harvard, uh, good friends of mine. And um, But the other day I was thinking, we need to add to that and say, all boundaries leak. <laughs> all boundaries leak. Now, we know that, but the human being has to deal with some kind of a boundary, and we need to realize that outside, that that there is leakage in boundaries, and therefore, that's one of the sources of surprises when things don't work out right for us. All right, so what this does, though, is force us into a kind of humility uh, that's a forced humility. that says, look, uh, we think we're getting on top of this, but uh, we're fundamentally ignorant. We cannot trace all that's responsible for uh, our livelihoods. Therefore, keep the scale small. Study the exits. Look for ways to compensate. Uh, uh, rather than the gee whiz approach um, 
that um, that our technological fundamentalism yeah. has taken us into. Yeah, you know, Wes's talk about the boundaries of causation and consideration, trying to recognize how much it takes to produce an item and our inability to really understand all of that energy. I want you to to really finish that point thoroughly, but I'm going to interrupt you for a moment and remind our listeners I'm here with Dr. Wes Jackson and Dr. Robert Jensen and They are the co-authors of An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Wes Jackson and Dr. Robert Jensen. They are the co-authors of An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity. And we were were just getting into the talking about keep it small and commenting on Wes's, uh, Robert's comment. Yeah, so Wes used an important phrase, full cost accounting. If you're going to to ask the question, how much energy does an electric vehicle use? You have to go all the way back to the mining of the ore, the production of the plastic, the manufacturing. And when you do that, it turns out that electric vehicles aren't such an environmental boon. There's problems with electric vehicles. Now, I I wanna make it clear, I'm not arguing against people buying an electric vehicle, but the answer to our problem is not swapping out every gas powered engine for an electric vehicle. It's fewer cars and less motion, (laughs) you know, staying put. Now we're back to limits. Instead of saying, oh, yeah, you can drive as much as you want and you'll have this nifty little electric vehicle. We're saying, no, you can't drive as much as you want. None of us can. And it may be that electric vehicles are part of the transition to a more sustainable human presence. But we're not all going to be zipping around in those uh, uh, like we do today. That's because we're not paying attention to the energy it takes to produce an electric vehicle. And that's just one great example of how what people offer as a solution actually, in a lot of ways, digs the hole deeper. If we simply swap out every gas engine car for an electric vehicle, we're still heading for the cliff. Right. So going back to something else besides, you know, how we get around in in gas fuel engines and so forth, the limit in population, and you talked about there are 8 billion people, you suspect, and nobody really knows, and you don't Mm -hmm. claim to know, that the maybe 2 billion people, uh, humans on the planet is within the carrying capacity Mm -hmm. of of, uh, the ecosphere. So that's a difficult one. Wow. Get that but, into the public discourse. And, and we also should add the obvious point that it's not just the raw number of people. It's how much each person is consuming. So per capita consumption matters. So that 
just complicates our ability to, to give a number that is sustainable because it depends on is being used. I, Wes might not remember this, but in a talk long ago, long before Donald Trump was president, Wes was comparing a friend of his who lived in a small shack and consumed very little. And he said, uh, his friend's name was Leland. And he said, the world can, can sustain a lot of Lelands, but not very many Donald Trumps. <laughs> uh, and of course, that turned out to be prescient in more ways than one. But you know, that's another limit. It's not just the limit on the number of people. It's the limit on how much each person consumes. And we're back to the denialism. It's very hard to say we're going to consciously move to a smaller population with each person consuming much less. And I, I want to make a point, you know, Wes mentioned humility is, an, I think, an important part of this book, because we're not saying, listen, everybody should live like us. We're not saying we're role models. Right. Everybody is implicated in this. We're all living past the energy budget of a sustainable human presence. And we don't pretend to have, as I said, the easy answers. And we don't pretend to be especially moral. Uh, you know, we we all fail in, in this sense. And the collective failure then has to be dealt with collectively, not by pointing fingers at the bad people. Uh, we have to re-engineer the world. You know, I looked, I, I continued to look and search for, okay, what are those points of solution that little glimmers of light that maybe showed up in your book? And I came up with a couple. One has to do with increasing our collective imagination. I'm reminded of a quote by a friend, uh, William McDonough, who is an anticipatory design architect. And he made this statement. He said, let's imagine if we commit 100% of our imagination toward a goal that is delightfully diverse, safe, healthy, and a just world with clean air, water, soil that is economically, equitably, ecologically, elegantly enjoyed. You really talked about our imagination and the stories that we're telling and telling new stories. And the other solution that uh, you came up with that I picked out uh, was, okay, we may not be able to do the impossible. But within the possible, what can we create for possibly a softer landing in this new era of limits? We could take off that way and talk about a softer landing. Uh, but I think a softer landing is, in fact, going to be a derivative. And here's what I mean. I've been working in my red barn lately uh, in order to get the tools better arranged, to uh, uh, have a big space for art, about half of the space devoted to art. And I'm remembering Kumar Swami's uh, comment. He was at, I think, the Philadelphia Art Museum. And he said, Art has to be both useful, useful as well as beautiful. Well, you think about that really hard. What is the utility of Michelangelo's David? 
what is the utility of the Mona Lisa? What is the utility of a shovel? We got that one easy. So we have an inventory of our tools. And I'm telling young people, when they ask, what do we do? I say, get tools and learn how to use them. And that has the potential of bringing in a certain uh, realm of humility. Now, if we imagine what it's going to be like to live in a world of less stuff, suddenly you start on a journey. And as a consequence of that journey of how you are going to live with less, you actually accelerate the softness of the landing. But you see, if you start out with, let's have a soft landing, uh, then that becomes the goal rather than it being a derivative of what we might call the right livelihood that we're going to have to have in this apocalyptic state. I think we've been in the apocalypse, by the way, for 10,000 years. Mm. I think that the this idea of apocalypse is kind of a Johnny-come-lately idea uh, <laughs> that uh, we give, give a name to. But if we can imagine, I'm just repeating, if we can imagine a life within a less world, now we are in the world in a way that is less hard to um, to manufacture. Well, this is like that phrase that you say, there was a phrase around less is more. You're saying yeah, less right. is less. Less is less. <laughs> yeah. But less is okay. And, and it's okay. less is okay. Less is okay. You see, one of our worries is people, uh, you know, the old saying, when in worry, when in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. <laughs> and uh, we used to say that to one another in grade school and high school and so on. Uh, but in a way, that's what we do. Uh, we say, oh, my golly, we've got, to, we got climate change and we need to cut the use of carbon and so on. Well, look, <laughs> I didn't, my parents um, were both born before 1900. My grandparents were all born before the Civil War. And I was a late child in a family of six. And I got an awful lot of the culture from that world of being careful. I mean, the food I ate mostly came from the farm where I grew up. Uh, now, we did go to get flour. We wouldn't have had to. And we did go to get sugar. But you mostly were eating what you grew. Now, these folks were not thinking all the time, these parents and other uh, family members. Uh, they weren't thinking about the virtue of um, what they were thinking about as being able to, they were thinking about responsible livelihood. <laughs> That's all. And as a derivative, 
responsible livelihood required that you had your milk cows, you had your hogs, you had your chickens, you had your diversity of crops. I mean, we had 20 some crops in addition to all of that. Now, it wasn't about somebody trying to be heroic. It was a life. It's a life. And so that is what I think has to be more of the goal. Uh, there are things that I refuse to participate in this world, uh, partly because I tell myself that isn't what life is about. And it'd be pretty easy for me to participate. I mean, they're being shoved at me all the time. Uh, I'm not very good at the computer. I'm forced into dealing with the computer. But I intend as long as I can to remain as ignorant as possible uh, on the use of the computer. I think the computer will one day go away. And partly because it's not a very good way to be spending your time. You spend more, I spent more good time in my barn uh, than I've spent actually even, well, never mind. I can <laughs> tell you. Uh, <laughs> you see, you see, this is where the mind, my friend, our, my friend Leland that got by, um, you know, on $500 a year. Leland said, I do this because it's easy. He was not trying to be some kind of a special something or other that he was, he got on a journey and it became a derivative that $500 a year livelihood became a derivative of a way of being. Yeah. He did that for 29 years. You see, so we, here's the reason morality has to be uh, pumped up. Morality is something that we impose on ourselves as a way of behaving rather than having a behavior. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's a provocative statement. I'm here with Dr. Wes Jackson and Dr. Robert Jensen. They're the co-authors of An Inconvenient Apocalypse. So we're talking about environmental collapse and the cascading, uh, multiple cascading ecosystem crisis that we're facing today. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Wes Jackson and Dr. Robert Jensen. And 
I want to say uh, the title of the book is An Inconvenient Apocalypse, Environmental Collapse, Climate Crisis, and the Fate of Humanity. And I just want to say to our listeners, when this book landed on my desk, and because I know of the work of Wes Jackson and Robert Jensen, uh, both former guests of New Dimensions, and they have such a huge respect for both of you and your work in the world and as what I would call you practical philosophers, um, that what you are presenting, even though it may be hard to read in the hard truths that you're presenting, I was really, really glad I read this book. And I am really glad that you are here on New Dimensions and helping us at this time. So I just want to let our listeners know that, hey, don't, don't be afraid to pick up this book and to, to, to face our collective denials, whatever they might be. And Wes, you were just talking about uh, morality, and we've been talking about humility, and we've been talking about limits and all of this. And and I'm just reminded of that which when as human beings, as, as a species that we are, when we are most happy, when we are most joyful, is when we are in connection with one another and connection with the earth. And that's the truth of it. And it isn't about, about what we bought, our latest uh consumer items or our computers or our iPhones, but it's when we've been together, like you, like the three of us right now are, are together in this moment, sharing a moment, sharing a visit. We are visiting one another right now. And um, I'd love for you to say something about um, the importance of that as, as a species, as yeah. what really gives us joy. Yeah. Well, here's a little something that I think is worthy of a lot of thought. And that is that the language of virtue arises in its absence. Uh, for instance, we talk about uh, proper behavior in the use of land. And um, if you are doing your land right, you're not going around talking about having a language of virtue. You are just doing. You see, and what happens is the virtue language, the language of virtue goes up, I think, proportional to the advancement of impropriety or sin or whatever. Uh, just live the good life. And in the, living the good life, you don't go around saying good life. Uh, let me give one little example. My parents, maybe my mother toward the very end, never told me they loved me. But I never had any doubt. Never had any doubt. Now, why? I'm not objecting if people want to say I love you or this, that, and the other. But they... Uh, what is it that tells us it's okay? We're having a good life of care. 
and so on. So that that's all. That this this uh, it's a kind of hyperbole that becomes necessary in the absence of the virtue. Yeah. So if we be, this is only a long-winded way of saying that if we get the context of our livelihoods proper, if which includes, and you know, you can take what we think is a sizable population for a group of people, if we uh, become neighborly, if we become if we become, and so on, then we are there. <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not talking it up. You see, and you're engaged in that world. Yeah, I think Wes is making a very important point. We don't deny the importance of politics and policy. Right? We have to reshape the way we live through collective action and government and all of that. But Wes is pointing out, I think, that culture goes a lot deeper and that when we have when what some people would say are in right relation to each other and to the, the environment around us, then doing the right thing kind of comes easy. And the problem, of course, is modern social, political and economic structures make it so easy to do the wrong thing. And again, I don't just mean people involved in criminal or corrupt behavior. Uh, Wes and I would both be able to spend the next hour listing every you know use of energy that we engage in that is simply not sustainable. Uh, but that's the system we're in. And so, uh, you know, you mentioned Wes's previous book, Hogs Are Up, which I always say is the best titled book title in the history of publishing. <laughs> uh, and that's a set of stories about that Wes draws on his history really uh, living in an almost 19th century style farm community. Uh, and as Wes always says, it's not for mere nostalgia that you tell these stories. It's because there are lessons in them. Now, of course, we don't think everybody should go back to live in the way people lived in 1930 or 1940 or whatever. But it's about the lessons learned because going forward, we're not going to replicate the past. But we're also not going to live in this, you know, gee whiz future that Wes has been critiquing. So looking at the best of human traditions and how they kept people together through hard times and recognizing we're going to have to make a lot of it up as we go along as well. Uh, but I had to put in a plug for Hogs Are Up. It's it's one of my favorite books because it's through stories that we remind ourselves of this, not just through lecturing and, you know, pointing fingers at people. I just want to spell that because um, people might not catch that title, hogs, as in pigs, mm. H-O-G, hogs are up, is the name of that book. Mm. And I have it sitting on my desk. I'm so excited about reading it. I only read the uh, the intro, which, Robert, you wrote to, mm. to the book, which, which I loved. So I'm really excited about reading it. And I hope it gets on... Um, I don't know if this is technologically bad, but but on Audible too, yeah. so people can hear it and hear hear Wes telling the stories himself. So I I encourage that. And um, so going, thank you, thank you, Robert, for that. And and I'm just reminded of another phrase that you use in the book is it's about um, a strong endorsement of love in action. 
love in action. So it's any any comment on that? Yeah, Bob, Bob's the one that brought that uh, to the fore for the book. And I think it's a very important. Bob, uh, let Bob talk about that. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with invoking love. Love is a very important part of our existence. Uh, but I got that phrase from an old friend of mine, now dead, a longtime radical activist named Abe Osheroff. And he used to say that, you know, everybody invokes solidarity. We got to have solidarity. And I asked him once, what is solidarity for you? And he said, solidarity is love in action, right? It's, it's fine to profess love. It's better to act on love. Uh, and in the book, we point out that love is not always, you know, um, a nice sunny day. Sometimes love is harsh and sometimes love leads us to, uh, really difficult choices. Uh, and that's what we're trying to say in the book, especially at the end there is, we wrote this book out of love, but it doesn't mean we come up with some upbeat, sunny conclusion, you know, that uh, we quote Dostoevsky, that love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. And the world doesn't need any more love in dreams. It needs love in action. Uh, and the first step in that, of course, is facing reality. And I'm talking about dreams. Uh, there is something in the uh, introduction to, I think, Hogs Are Up uh, that you wrote, Robert. Uh, and it's about the stories, the new stories that we mm. need to be telling ourselves. Uh, that we're really inventing these new stories and that we are storytelling species. Yeah. And that here we are, uh, we are needing the great imagination to imagine a new story for humanity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we yeah. talked a lot about the need for stories. And let's go back to a, a friend that Wes mentioned, his friend Leland. Leland uh, is not a hero in the traditional sense. You know, he never had any great accomplishment. He didn't win a medal. But in a, a lot of ways, we have to realize that the heroes we need for the future are people like Leland, who lived in a very sparse and some might say kind of crazy way. We need Leland as a hero, not because everybody's going to replicate his life, but because the story of Leland making that choice to live as close to the bone as possible is inspiring. I have another friend I talk about in the book uh, named Jim Copland, who was that same kind of figure in my life. And the thing about people like that, the real heroes, is they don't go around saying, be like me. They go around living their life uh, and they, they inspire people by their example, not by their lecturing. Beautifully said. I, I want to thank you both for being with us on the New Dimensions program series. Thank you so much for being with us. If people want to know more about the work of both of you, um, they can go to your different websites uh, for Wes Jackson. It's landinstitute.org, landinstitute.org. And for Robert, it's Robert W. Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N, robertwjensen.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3767.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.